All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, recording from Woodstock, New York, and I'm joined as usual by my friend and producer, the incomparable Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Hi. How are How you? How are you? Oh. <laughs> I, asked, I think I asked you first by like, I think I yes. beat you by a nose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing good. We're in the, the home stretch here uh, with uh, my students and finals. And so it's a lot of busy lab work, but uh, it's really exciting. And I'm just seeing a lot of great work. So uh, all is good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Lots going on. Really exciting. And, you know, nice and cold up here, moving into <laughs> winter, lots of fires, and, and by fires, I mean in the fireplace. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, all is well, no complaints. So before we talk about the episode, which is I can't wait to talk to you about, I want to just say that, as usual, the podcast is sponsored by our Good friends at Picture House and the Small Dark Room, who have been mm -hmm. our stalwart friends and sponsors for this season. And we, we love those guys and we're so grateful to them. And I know they have a lot of cool stuff coming up. I know. I just got a list hot off the presses here. Oh, uh, okay. December, yeah. December 2nd from 4 to 6. A book release event with Adriana Alt called Levy, published by Void. Yeah, people, December please go to that. I'm sorry, I have to jump in because mm -hmm. no, Addie's my friend yeah. and I, I know I'm supposed to be unbiased, but who says? Who says I'm supposed to be? <laughs> Wait, this is my I don't, show. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember signing I, that agreement. Yeah, yeah. I, I, for God's sake, I can, I can do whatever I want. Freewheeling, going crazy. Everyone go to Addie's event. She's a great person and a great photographer. So, okay. Yeah. Sorry, yep. please continue. December 2nd, yep, December 2nd, 4 to 6. Then December 9th from 4 to 6, another book release event, this time with Nick Wapplington called Comprehensive, and that's published by Fiden. Wow. Yeah. Uh, they have some special offers, 15% discount on all non-darkroom prints for the month of December. That includes the Mini Lab, our favorite. Oh, we love the Mini Lab. Mini Lab yep. C prints and RGB inkjet prints. And they are about to announce a new service. So you might be hearing it here first. Okay. Chromera Digital C-Prints up to 50 inches. And they will be sharing more information about that in December on their website. And of course, their website is PHTSDR, Picturehouse, the small darkroom.com. Same for their Instagram account, PHTSDR. Check them out. They are great partners. Yeah. And please go to their events. It's a real community building thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're all about. Well, Michael, this episode was, I almost feel slightly nostalgic because it was, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's the last of our three episodes that we did yes. in Atlanta. And it's very different because yes. it's a behind the scenes of the industry episode. It's my friend Anna Walker-Skillman, who is the head of Jackson Fine Art in Atlanta, an mm -hmm. incredible gallery. That space is unbelievable. Yeah, the space I mean, is off amazing. off the charts, unbelievable. Yep. Yep. Uh, I mean, it's like walking through 
rooms filled with incredible art and books, but then the space itself, it's its so airy and light. I mean, I, I was blown away by everything, yeah, uh, including Anna. I, yeah. I definitely ooh and ah over the space, and I, I, <laughs> but it really is a very special mm-hmm. place. It has this wonderful combination, as you just alluded to, of being both, of feeling both very open and very warm and intimate at the same time it's modern but it's not austere it's really Mm -hmm. it's really fabulous anna represents a lot of incredible artists so yeah go down to the high museum see the southern photography show go Mm -hmm. over to anna's i mean what a great (laughs) photo weekend that would be or (laughs) yes well we did it (laughs) yeah we did do it right yes yes it was (laughs) who cares if the rest of you go we did it (laughs) take it from us it was fantastic i don't care about you people out there for heaven's sake yes i do i care a lot yeah no that was really super fun i do want to just say One thing, Mm -hmm. really quickly, during the conversation, Anna talks about um, working on Elton's collection. Oh, yeah. And I just want to say, for those of you who don't know, that she's talking about Elton John, who is a huge photography collector, has a really important collection. So most people don't know that. But, you know, Anna's been working with him for so long that I don't think she was being coy about it. I think she just probably feels like most people know that. But I I think a lot of people don't realize that. But it's it's a really interesting little nugget of information. Can we say that Anna showed us his original Rolodex card from the the original Rolodex from the gallery? Oh, yeah, that was pretty great. That was wild. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen when you get a little, no. a little tour behind the scenes. Yeah, but you know, you called this a, a behind the scenes uh, episode, yeah. and the two of you have a really great conversation about kind of what makes a, a good collector, a smart collector, how if they know themselves or be willing to sort of learn more about themselves while collecting, that's sort of part of the job you have as guiding them. And that was just a, a fascinating, complex conversation. Yeah, no, I think yeah. Anna really led that conversation. And it mm-hmm. I was really interested to hear what she was saying. And, you know, we also talk quite frankly about the decline in collectors. Right. And that's probably going to be a tough little bit for some folks to hear. But I think mm-hmm. it's important to really understand the climate and the ecosystem that you're entering into. So I hope, I, yeah. I think this episode is going to be super helpful. I, well, I hope it is. It would be fun to hear oh, from, yeah. from people. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you can leave comments on Spotify and Apple. <laughs> there you go. You actually you are so slick. <laughs> no, you do something very funny about uh, halfway through or 24 minutes into the episode where you, you actually... If there was a camera, you would have turned to the audience and you start speaking to our audience directly in the show. What did I say? Was, oh, my God. You, so I, I think I know why. So you reference Anna almost in the third person and you kind of talk to the audience and you say, this is what we're talking about. It's very, <laughs> very funny. So listen for that. But Always I think you did it. Yeah, I think you did it because you were doing the, the La Luz workshops and you were in kind of workshop mode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was definitely was very seeped in my <laughs> faux professorial. It was um, very good. <laughs> well, I th- I do think it's really um, an important episode. People, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's important to to hear from artists and to be engaged yeah. with the conversations we have about making work. But I think it's also important to really understand once you do make the work how it circulates out in the world. Absolutely. Yeah, I I learned a lot. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. All right, well, Michael, if you don't mind, let's get to it. Please take it away. My pleasure, and here is your conversation with Anna Walker-Skillman. Anna Walker-Skillman, welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast. It's fantastic to have you on. It's fantastic to have you in Atlanta. (laughs) Here I am, along with Mr. Michael Chauvin-Dalton in the house. But yeah, and I'm in the new space, which I hadn't seen yet, which is so beautiful. Thank you. I uh, urged people to visit the High Museum to see this amazing exhibition of Southern photography. And I would just add that if you heed the call, people, and you come to Atlanta, you better get your butts over to Jackson Fine Art. Come to my home. That's what I call it, to my house. It's my house. (laughs) It is incredible. So I had seen Anna's old space many times, probably three or four times over the years, um, but this is the first time I'm seeing your new space. And, and in all seriousness, it is spectacular. Thank I you. mean, it's got really beautiful exhibition space, but it's also really geared as you're sort of intimating. It's, it's geared towards really walking around and seeing just work everywhere and books everywhere. And it's, it's beautifully curated. And it's, you know, I don't want to give the impression that it's in any way not really formal and neat as a pin, but it does feel there's an element of sort of a salon aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to to feel welcome. The space that we were in before the previous owner, Jane Jackson, started in that house in 1990. Mm -hmm. And so it was a leased building. It's Mm -hmm. a sweet little English Tudor white brick house. The back of the house, and the reason it was so conducive to an art gallery is that um, it was a big concrete block Mm -hmm. where the Southern ladies stored their furs Mm. in the, (laughs) in the, um, the summertime. So it was the Atlanta Fur Company, which actually happens to be right around the corner. And you can see they also built another block, but that block had 15 foot ceilings. And so you could walk down into it and have a contemporary space. Um, It was really hard to get me out of that space. (laughs) I was very reluctant to move. I started working in that space in 97 Mm -hmm. and had driven to that space every day since. And I'm I don't know, I was 27, now I'm 53. So it was just home and definitely kind of falling apart. And I have a business partner who's always encouraging me to like move forward, which, you know, I'm not great with change. And so I saw this this little house across the street constantly come up for sale. And I sort of inquired and then I thought, well, no, you know, we're not paying that. And right around the time of the pandemic, they came to us and 
my business partner also has partnered in a building venture. So uh, spec build home. And I knew the people that build his house and mm-hmm. other houses. And they're like family. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, if, if, if they're going to build it, they're you know, I, I will do it. Yeah, so, that's, that saves you a lot of it does. heartache and, and grief. Yeah. And I have never built anything. Mm-hmm. You would never have me hang a piece of artwork, nor would you have me plug anything in electrical or do anything <laughs> electrical or or technical because I have like a, 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 a ghost that likes to laugh at me every time I try to touch anything <laughs> electrical because it breaks. Um, and people in the gallery can... You know, it's your poltergeist. Yeah, it's not. Everything breaks around me. So the idea of building something was not, you know, it was... Daunting. I basically said, I want that house over there bigger with light, and I want it warm. Mm-hmm. And they were able to... I mean, it seems so simplistic, but really when we were talking about the floors, like we were talking about earlier, I was like, I want crisscross floors. And they're like, well, that's, you know, herringbone. And I was like, okay, that's what I want. And I want iron windows. And, you know, they're like, well, that's going to be $20,000 more. I was like, oh, well, no, you know. And so turns out that's not what I want. Yeah, it turns out that <laughs> it's what I got. Um, so, you know, it was real. It really was about building something around trust, mm-hmm. and um, and then we moved in in March. I think it. I can't even tell you how long it took. It must have been like eighteen months. We moved in in March, and it has. You know, it has been. Uh, yeah, I, I still live about forty eight minutes away from the gallery, in the same house I moved into in twenty o three, and and you know the the difference is now I have a hard time leaving here mm-hmm. at five o'clock. <laughs> I'm here till seven. Don't have a bed nor a shower here, so which is a good thing. Yeah. Um, but it's it's been really nice to have space that can show larger work, and yeah. I can kind of move and you know move with the medium. And mm-hmm. that's one thing that I think is really important to talk about in terms of photography and the medium itself, and how to move with what's happening in the world and. Looking back, you know, when I started in 97 to today and how artists and, you know, photographers are maneuvering through all of these changes. And I just want to say that it's okay for photographers to say they're photographers. They don't always have to say they're artists. You know, there's that whole, like, I'm a, you know, artist that works in the medium of photography, which is great. But it's also really a beautiful thing to say you know, I'm a photographer that's an artist. I, so yeah, just want to here, throw here. that out there. Here, here. Well, so let's get to all that because that's obviously critical. But tell us a little bit about your story, about yourself, how, how you wound up in this field. I mean, I I started you know, from a small town south, very conservative family, grew up in Augusta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. You know, the big thing there was the golf tournament and the mm-hmm. pimento cheese sandwiches and the green wrappers. And, you know, there's nothing about me that has to do with sports. Went to UGA, kind of found my place by putting on the combat boots and chain smoking and dyeing my hair red and found the art department mm-hmm. and got to know all the underground musicians and people in the arts. And then out of college, studied art history, I moved to San Francisco at 21. I had a my mother's contemporary, who was a, a cousin of hers, Ouija Bird, lived in San Francisco, and she said I could come stay in her apartment on Uranus Terrace. So I drove cross country, and she told me it was a two bedroom. So a roommate and I went, but the second bedroom was on the porch on a futon outside, mm-hmm. which was uncomfortable. <laughs> so we ended up sleeping in the same bedroom. Um, 
paying more than I ever have. But my first job um, was with Cheryl Haynes. Mm -hmm. And so my first exhibition was Andy Goldsworthy. Wow. I was 21 years old. I got fired from the gallery uh, after a year simply because I'm you know, was 21 years old and mm-hmm. had just knew nothing about a gallery. And yeah, I remember Todd Hosfeld took my job after that because he was a good salesman and I was probably not. But I loved that experience at Cheryl Haynes and it made me really sort of understand the gallery world mm-hmm. and what that was. And at that point I was like, you know, I don't know if I want to do that. I was unemployed. So I began writing for a cafe journal and doing advertising. It was headed up by David Eggers and a team of people that were unemployed down Mm -hmm. in the mission. And we all kind of sat in before Wired and all those people came. It was Mm -hmm. um, uh, in South Park and we would sell advertising and try to get jobs and collect unemployment. Then an artist that I had very romantic, uh, you know, established artist in Atlanta who I had met called and said, if you ever want to work in Atlanta, run my studio, you know, you're welcome to come. And I think after a year, I was like, I'm just going to go. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I had been in San Francisco long enough to have him fill out some contract, which I found on the floor of his 10,000 square foot studio with the Mastiff like sitting on it when I arrived mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> didn't matter. And I started just being his like assistant. Mm-hmm. And I really, it was an interesting time, really cool time in Atlanta. There were a lot of galleries. There was, you know, Jackson Fine Art. There was um, Fagel Gallery. Chassis Post had a really cool gallery in Virginia Highlands. There was a lot happening in the music scene. A friend, um, Sean Marshall, Cat Power. There was a lot of music happening in Atlanta. And it was just a, the early 90s was just a really interesting time. Smoke. Jim Cohen came down to film and do a film on Smoke. Michael Ackerman photographed Cabbage Town at the time. And there was just some phenomenal energy. A gallery opened, Vacton Swartz, and they were showing, like, you know, Tom Sachs. I was his host for a weekend. And so it was an ex- exciting time. And the artists that I worked with ended up moving to Virginia and introduced me to Jane. Mm-hmm. And Jane needed a gallery director. I had a boyfriend that was into photography that had taught me about William Eggleston and Freelander and Winogrand, but I had never worked in photography mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. So I started working for Jane and sort of under her wing, you know, to work under someone like Jane Jackson, you know, it was just a pure education in the history of photography mm-hmm. and understanding, you know, the early, I mean, went to my first APAD show in the Hilton 1998, mm-hmm. and we went the box of prints that we just like sold and took checks. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was, uh, it was a great, great way to start. And that's essentially how I started. And then in 2003, um, Elton, who came to the gallery in 94, he just moved here and had stopped. He was sober, had really found a love for photography mm-hmm. and knocked on the door. And mm-hmm. Jane worked with him in other galleries um, really to help build his collection. Mm-hmm. and World famous collection. Yes. You know, in 93, she come to me and to ask if I wanted to purchase the gallery because she was going to, she had the opportunity to curate his collection full time. And so I had to find a partner. It wasn't mm-hmm. something I could afford my, mm-hmm. to do on my own. Mm-hmm. So I found a partner and 
And that was 20 years ago this year. Right. Wow. Well, so that's it. Happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> um, Thank you. Well, and of course, it, I'm sure it was when Jane had it, but it surely is one of the most important photo galleries in the country and certainly in um, the most important in, in the South. So, you know, you represent, you know, really the gosh, the list is so long of, of top photographers that, that you work with. Um, so it's... Just... Well, the good news, I think that the ability to be able to have the relationships that Jane had mm -hmm. prior, I mean, a lot of the artists that we initially started working with, you know, we were part of APAD, which is, was a really strong association mm -hmm. of trusted dealers that were very open to moving their artist around and to getting them to show in different places. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, you know, had a lucky, you know, the ability to kind of draw, like, you know, have these collaborations right. with other galleries in New York, like Yancey Richardson right. has been a wonderful collaborator, Edwin Houck, mm -hmm. Frankel Gallery, mm -hmm. um, the list, you know, goes on and on. And that was the ability to bring artists initially like to Atlanta mm -hmm. to have exhibitions yeah. and um you know we always showed them a really nice time so they yeah. continued to want to come yeah. <laughs> so well, I know many artists who work with you and love you as we we all do so that makes perfect sense so let's talk about some of the changes in the in the industry you you were talking about the changes in photography itself. Yeah. So let's start there, and then we can sort of also talk about the structure. Of well, I think the first part of the changes is when, you know, someone came in with a G-clay print. I said, there's no way in hell I'm ever selling a G-clay print. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the first time and thinking, well, Jesus Christ, that's all, that's all I'm selling now are G-clay prints. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's just the change in the medium and j adjusting to the fact that the, the history of the medium, whether something, there's, you know, no more Cebuchrome material available some artists have it or dye transfers or how the c prints have shifted mm -hmm. and you know when you've been in the business now over 20 years you know you're obviously going to have a lot of collectors that are coming back with their prints that are faded and mm -hmm. and how are you going to deal with that and convince them that how do you deal with that oh well there's a lot of different ways lots of times i'll walk into a house we're talking about c prints c prints yeah. yeah i'll walk into a house you know, a client will have this piece that has been in the light. And I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. And my assistant will be like, you know, Anna, stop, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that print has, and they're like, we didn't even notice. I'm like, it's blue. Right. You know, we need to we need to change that. I think that there is a mentality around collectors that things are forever. Right. And I think the show we have up now with Megan Rippenhoff, and I'll talk about that later, lends itself just to the opposite of that notion. But, you know, there's an expectation expectation that if it has shifted that it's my responsibility or the you know the artist's responsibility to pay and and what everyone knows who's photographers it is a rich man's medium it is a very expensive medium unfortunately most of the people that are doing it are not and it's incredibly costly to make prints to mm -hmm. mount them to frame them it's it's a massive undertaking and so I think what, and a lot of the processes have changed, the mounting on aluminum and then the UV coating, which, you know, in the South, it shrinks. And so the UV coating on the front of the prints, like, starts shrinking, and mm -hmm. then you get dust. You know, there are all these different mm -hmm. things, so then they change their process. But, you know, I have issues with 
the way I hope to deal with it is the artist is living that they will provide a print mm -hmm. and then the client will pay for the production, yeah, which that's is, how we do it. you that's know, that is, yeah. but you do, you have, it just doesn't, you know, it's always a bit of a delicate conversation. And I always say something to the effect of, well, you bought that print in, you know, 10 years ago and you paid, you know, let's say it was 5,500. So you take those years and you divide it by 365, divide it by 10 and you pay $23 or whatever it is a day. And, you know, now it's just the steward and the care for it. Like mm -hmm. any house, you mm -hmm. have to care mm -hmm. for it. So I try to break it down in that way, but it is like, it's, you know, it's color photo. It's, it will change, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm like anything else. Yeah. So, but I think the medium has changed so much in terms of how work is presented, how Well, um, tell me about that. I what think you... that the process of printing, mounting, framing, you know, early on you would do a show and a box of 20 by 24 inch prints would show up at your door and then you would, you know, frame them and you would do a show. And today, you can put anywhere from, you know, 5000 to 25000 simply in the production of work. And then you have to kind of contend with, well, now that the work's produced, and if it does sell or doesn't sell, how is it going to move through the world? Because if you keep it for longer periods of time, it becomes obsolete in some respect because artists will reprint something. They will. So then maybe what you have doesn't have any validity, but you also have, you know, a certain amount of money into producing it. I think it's really hard. I think that what most galleries probably need to present the work is to think clearly when they do an exhibition it's works that you think you could sell. And sometimes that is in conflict with the notion of the work, but there has to be sort of a, a happy medium in that way. We've asked our artist to start paying for the mounting so that it can move through the world, meaning that once, you know, we'll pay for the, the framing and once it shows over, we're able to return it. But sometimes that's another expense. So it is, it is complicated. I recommend that most artists do, if it's feasible, provide the gallery with a, a nice selection, if it's large-scale work, of handling prints, mm -hmm. which for us is very useful because we sell a lot in the gallery mm -hmm. and people come in. And But, you know, a lot of people still want to take an iPad. I do terrible with selling on an iPad. Mm -hmm. I don't do well. Mm -hmm. I, I want to hold it, feel it. Yeah, and so, you. And I think it's harder and harder you know, especially galleries that are working in photography, you know, that a lot of the galleries are, are slipping away. I mean, they're mm -hmm. either getting, photographers are getting picked up by, you know, the bigger mega galleries. Yeah. And then these younger, you know, it takes, it takes a lot to run a gallery. Like it, no more one, two, three people running a gallery. You have to have, there's so many parts of running a gallery that I think sometimes artists may or may not know. Like, the marketing that you have to do, the digital footprint that you have to have in terms of a website and selling that way, the, you know, framing, the mounting, the installation, the um, shipping. There's just like, you know, then you've got to have your salespeople and then you have to have your social marketing. And 
It really is. And like if you're a, doing art fairs, that's a whole logistics. You have to logistics. hold art fairs, the logistics. Yeah. And it just is almost like unless... It's you an know, operation. It's an operation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it takes every part, every person that's a part of that operation mm-hmm. is just as essential mm-hmm. as the salespeople mm-hmm. or as the artists. You know, I think that they're, you know, the artists don't always know, like, you know, what do I do at an art fair? And it's like, I, you know, I recently went to an art fair where I felt like I wish that they would have a very cool space for artists to congregate. Mm-hmm. So it could be a meeting place for them, but also the dealers that are there showing work that we could come and meet with them when we have mm-hmm. time provided. Mm-hmm. But when we did this art fair, it's important for artists to come because we're representing them. But also, I think I remember standing in an art fair and there were like, I think, 45 artists that came by to say hello, which I love because that's, you know, I mean, I'm I'm good at that. Um, sometimes I'm not as good at sales at the art fair, but let other people do that. But I think it's also, they don't know what their place is in those right. spaces. Right, I think that's, that's true. And it's important to create a really important space for them mm-hmm. in an art fair. Mm-hmm. No, that's a really um, good point. It's awkward. It is. Um, it's yeah. a, it is it's complex. But I think that photographers now are really depending more on each other and the, I agree. the support of each other more than the galleries. Well, also, there's not, as you were saying, there's just not a lot of places to um, show that are dedicated to showing photography, whether it's nonprofits or for-profits. So they're sort of, you know, books have become really paramount in a photographer's career. You know, I, I mean, I can think of so many photographers off the top of my head, very well-known contemporary photographers who don't have representation, but they have careers because they're making books right. and because the community is very tight. And it is. There's the ability to do loyal. a lot of networking and, and helping one another out. So I think that the photography market is not in a great place. Um, <laughs> I agree. I think um, that there is a responsibility of the galleries that are showing photography or selling photography, whether it's a contemporary art gallery or photography gallery, that lends itself to hiring salespeople that understand the medium. Mm -hmm. Because I think that the younger generations coming up, I mean, our collectors are aging out that have been so loyal to the medium. Mm -hmm. And it's really important because you've got a new collector group coming up that the only understanding they have around photography is like their own images they take of themselves. And because the internet is so vast, and, you know, people are taking images and printing them themselves or their posters, you know, it's very confusing to understand the medium because there's so much competition and noise out there. So I think what the big responsibility that I've tried to take is really to continue teaching collectors like this is a silver gelatin print. This is the early photographer, someone like Andre Cortez's distortions from mm-hmm. 1930s are as contemporary today mm-hmm. as oh, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And, and those relationships, yeah. most collectors now, you know, there's difference between a collector and a buyer. There's mm-hmm. a lot of buyers, mm-hmm. less photography collectors. And I think that it really comes down to, you know, they're out there. 
it's just that there needs to be, and just like any collector needs to be kind of fed and nourished and education. And I think that's another reason that this space, like I have all these books and I have, you know, references and I want people to be able to come here to have conversations, like bring Mm -hmm. people here. I want it to be a space, not only like Sasha, like I'm so thrilled you're here, but I want to say to you, like anytime you want to do something on a Saturday and, or you come down to Atlanta and you pull a group of people together, you know, I want this to be the place to do Mm -hmm. it. I want a meeting place, a meeting place for artists and for photo enthusiasts and teachers and education you know, wow. I've got plenty of space to do it. And that's really important. I just don't quite know what that concept is. I think that's a beautiful sort of vision. I mean, I'm not sure I think that we can really do much to change what's going on now. I mean, I feel somewhat, you know, insulated because so much of my work now is with museums and they have a mandate to acquire. And I know a lot of your work is with museums. And so, you know, when you've been doing it as long as we have, we're sort of have a little bit more protection as the collectors fall away. And Anna mentioned collectors aging out. And I just want to second that, you know, 10 years ago, people like Anna and I had you know, a good handful, Anna probably a lot more than than me, but a good handful of collectors. At a certain point, people get to an age where they're not going to collect anymore. People don't collect until they are at the end of their life. They either donate their collection to a museum where it's been promised, or they put it up for auction, they, they sell it off, they bequeath it to someone in the family, whatever. But in my experience, there is no younger generation. And I think that's purely a function of the collectors that existed. I think of them all as a bunch of, it's mostly men. And I think of them as the guys who really wanted to be photographers, but wound up as lawyers and doctors. (laughs) But they grew up in the darkroom. And so they were really, they knew the language. They knew the process. They also knew how hard it was because they didn't make it. They didn't do it. And so they, they had a real understanding of all the things that go into being a photographic artist, you know, it being beyond just knowing how to use a camera because they knew how to use a camera, but how to create a really, really important body of work, uh, <laughs> you know, there's so many other things that, as we talk about on the show all the time, that go into that beyond even pure artistry, but also a certain intellect of decision-making, um, et cetera. So these collectors really had an appreciation for that. I think that people who are coming of age where there are no dark rooms don't understand. They don't get how hard it is in a way. So it's not that the dark room per se was the hard part, although it was a dark it was. working in a dark room and making a beautiful print in and of itself could separate the right. you know the weak from the strong, right? But I think with everyone just on their phone making pictures, you know, I'm I'm tempted to name a name because I think it'll all make sense if I do, but I'm not going to. But I I've had people say to me, you know, show me a picture that they took on their phone and say to me, doesn't this look an awful lot like, and then name one of my artists. 
And, you know, that's not something I would have ever heard from someone who really understood the language more. But I hope I'm being coherent here. But you are. I mean, I've had a, like the same, you know, I have had a collector who started collecting, but he's also a photographer and mm-hmm. he's wanting to know like where to print his prints and, you know, where to go. And, and, you know, he came back and he said, wow, you know, this is, these don't look anything like mm-hmm. what I thought they would. I was like, yes, because you're looking at a, you know, an inch, you know, this tiny little image on your phone that is not going to translate. Right, it's not an 8 and by 10 negative. No, right. and I think, I think that there's still interest in, and I think it goes back to the difference between collectors and buyers. Yeah, buyers because generally decorating. They decorate now to put a something col- on the wall. You know, we had this guy come in recently and you rarely do you get a collector in but he came in because he son was here and I gave them you know a music book because he's been collecting music images and you could see that when he came in and I started pulling out you know a bunch of different music images which isn't we don't have a huge collector base that buys music images but every once in a while we do and I could just see his face and like, well, I want this and I want that. And you're like, oh, thank God. Like he's going to, and then he shows his phone and every wall is filled. He's only been doing this for like six months. And I'm like, he's not going to end. Like he, he's been touched. And he's like, I live in Noonan and, you know, he's an insurance agent and, you know, he came in and there's just like something about collecting these music images and these photographs that has like changed his world. And that is so refreshing. You know, he's got a couple of fashion images in there. He likes some nudes and I love my female nudes as well. And I am like so excited to be able to show him some like really good, like build him up from that. But you know, he's like, yeah, I bought a couple of things online and the print was just so bad. Now I'm just going to come to you with everything. I can't oh, believe yeah, you have great. this here, yeah, you know? That's great. That's, and that rarely uh, yeah. happens these days. But, you know, I was thinking maybe you do a collecting seminar and a recovering alcoholic facility or something like that with for very wealthy people because when they they come out of that facility they need some sort of addiction and, <laughs> and that is so I think if we all go into these high-end like you know addictive facilities and do a collecting seminar we'll we'll hit a couple of them we're looking we're doing it in the wrong places you well, know we just need an addict in here a recovering addict and then there you go uh, Well, you're touching on something that I was, you're joking, but you're touching on something that I was going to say, which Mm -hmm. is the other ingredient. And this is something that you could make from young people who don't have that same relationship to photography that I was talking about a few minutes ago, which is in order to be a collector, you also have to want to collect. So Collectors have a collecting gene, so they could be collecting stamps or rare coins or or cars or whatever it is they want. Like my collectors that I still have are, they are addicted. So every time one of my artists puts out a new project, they can't help themselves. They They have to buy. And by the way, I have a little bit of that in me, not I can control it, but, but I have enough to totally understand it. So... I do think that this is, you know, a very complicated issue, and I I don't really know what the solution is, but I will say, and I'm sure you agree with this, although obviously we need to make a living and we make a living selling work, but putting aside the drop-off of collectors, 
there are many ways in which what's going on in photography, it feels very exciting. It does. That there are so many wonderful photographers, contemporary photographers working now, and it seems to me more than when I started. And really talented photographers and artists. And I think, you know, we're constantly in the gallery thinking of ways of marketing and bringing people, you know, and one of the ways there's a a little town about 45 minutes south of here called Serenby. And it's one of those, like, all this, this whole community of people have moved down there and they have like restaurants and they do all these fun things on the weekends. And they have a organization called Art Farm. And we had Thomas Jackson, one of our artists, go down and do a, you know, retreat where he went for a week and he made a few pieces. And then we did like an art over dinner. And there were all these people that came that have never collected before, but it was a, a way to give a percent to the nonprofit, the art farm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, something that would have been, you know, we were able to sell eight or nine pieces. He got to speak about his work. He had an exhibition to people that never had bought photography before. And so it has to also be around, you can't expect people to walk in the door. We're trying to have speakers come down Mm -hmm. and we're also in the art world, in the photography world, and talk about, we have a series called Collecting and Conversations. We also are trying to do just even small dinners with Tuesday night, get to go, you know, food and have three couples. And, and you're talking with people that have never collected. Mm-hmm. So I start off, I'm one of those old schoolers that have all of my invitations. I'll show them to you, like the cards, which I'm still being told not to print them out. And we're kind of still doing it and kind of not. But you know, I will put all the cards out on the flat file and I'll say to each of the people, pick where you are now in your life and pick where you want to be, mm-hmm. pick an image. Mm-hmm. And then we sit at dinner and we talk about that. Like, mm-hmm. why did you pick that? Mm-hmm. And why, where do you want to be? And why that? You know, photography, collecting, art in general, it teaches you to see the world mm-hmm. in a different way. Yep. You look at a Mark Steinmetz's little like twig growing out of the, the road or someone's gesture of their hand, a woman putting her hand on her face or someone, you know, walking down the road. It forces you to see things, trees that are sort of crying or, you know, just the world around you differently. And that is the beauty of what photography does because it shows you the everyday, but it also forces you to see something in the very back or, you know, on the left side of the image or how someone's hand is touching the another hand. mindfulness. It is. And I think that when someone like is looking outside of their normal day to day and they, they see, you know, to build a collector, that person has to get to know themselves. And so mm-hmm. it's our job to make those connections between who that person is and the artwork they're looking at. It's our job to show them to see differently through the artwork. And so that is like just a really elementary way of like bringing someone into the conversation without saying, oh, you've got to buy this or that, or let's go through the drawers. Let's just look at these images and tell me where you are. Oh, that's wonderful. I I love that. I, I think it's a really beautiful way of spending time with people and trying to pass on this thing that you, you really love and not only love, but as you're saying, you know, you really believe, you know, teaches about the world. And I completely agree. I mean, 100%. The amount of things I've learned from looking at photographs is sort of staggering. 
Yeah, and the way you, like I was driving, and I'll show you after this, I was driving down the road on the way back from an event at the High Museum, and I was on this, like, you know, DeKalb Avenue, and I was stopped at a stop sign, and I looked to my left, and there's this, like, man who's got, like, a boombox strapped to his back. It's all lit up, and he had, like, a, a tiger head thing on, and he was just standing there on his scooter with, he was lit up, and the boombox was playing, and I was like, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. You know, there's mm-hmm. this person entertaining mm-hmm. themselves, mm-hmm. creating his own world, mm-hmm. And, you know, people were probably passing by him left Mm -hmm, and right and not mm -hmm. even noticing that. Um, But my business partner, who's probably one of the hardest people to crack or get to know, is an incredibly warm person, very um, intelligent. And when I built work for his house, I've always been like, wow, I can't believe he likes this. Like, I don't know, you know, but okay. And, you know, he buys what he likes. He doesn't ask any of the major questions. And then... When I was having to do a collecting seminar at his house with some of his friends, I thought to sit down and write a kind of like not an obituary, but like a Mm self-portrait of him through his artwork, Mm. he and his Mm -hmm. wife's artwork. Like, Mm -hmm. why did he pick the Monocoon private? Because he's like a really private person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why did he pick the Andrew Moore of the Selma, the social club, the Mm -hmm. Jewish social club? Mm -hmm. Because... You know, he is Jewish mm-hmm. and he also found, you know, there was something the about that in the South. Yeah. And, sure you know, why did he pick, you know, this piece in Naples? Like, mm-hmm. and I was able to describe him as a human being through the oh, photographs. That, that's fantastic. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's the best part of what we do, not the things come damaged or you can't find so right. yeah there's a whole other world of what we do that's like we're just like constantly pulling our hair out because you know you can't make everyone happy you can't take all the phone calls from the 30 artists in one week because you just don't have the mind space or the bandwidth and you're trying to you know kind of be there for everyone that you know, and that's the hard part yeah, is, is the expectation yeah. I, I just want to say for everyone listening who has put together an idea in their head of people who are pillars of the community and have gotten it in their head that, you know, there was a a time a number of years ago where I was really hearing a lot of just negative things about art dealers and about gallerists. And and when I hear that, it, it really makes me mad, not just because it's what I do, <laughs> so I take it personally. But it's just not accurate. You know, there's a s- small percentage of people who give the the whole industry a bad name. But most people are like my friend Anna here, who is one of the kindest people I know and loves photography, loves artists, and is working her butt off to, you know, treat this medium and the people who work in it with, you know, the utmost respect. And it's no one's get-rich-quick scheme. It comes from a place of real passion and love. So, you know, I think it's, it's really important for people to to remember that. I think it's I think it's really hard for artists to look at and I'm just gonna like lay it all out here. Um, do, do it. Okay. You know, selling a piece. So let's say, you know, 
I mean, there's this whole notion in the universe that every person that walks in the door, and especially today because of Artsy and Artnet and because of the way that every investment banker has suddenly become an art dealer. And there's a whole world out there where works go for this just like insane amount. Well, I have to be a steward of your work for long term. I can't Mm -hmm. go and sell the work at a price that's unreasonable. It has to make sense. Mm -hmm. And what happens is that you forget there's so many people in the pot around a piece of artwork at times where you've got, you know, the collector wanting their 10%, which, you know, somehow someone has like taught them that the value of the work is not the value of the work. You know, there's no other business in the world. I can't walk into the grocery store and ask for 10% off my cereal. You know, I mean, it's like, so you've got to think about that. And then, you know, most artists split that discount. And then, you know, you think about, well, now I've got to get it mounted up in New York and it's got to get to Atlanta to my collector. And the gallery is incurring that cost of getting it here, um, shipping it in the crate and all of that. And then then you have this piece that's 10000 They want 10%. And then you're splitting it. And then when all is said and done, you know, you're making your 4000 The gallery's making their 4000 The piece sold for ten. But there's also other situations, and I'm just speaking with art consultants here as well, is that I could be working with an artist where their production itself can be 25% of the cost of the piece that Mm -hmm. I'm taking off the top. And then I'm having to give a split to a gallery. The artist isn't sharing it. And, you know, suddenly I sell something that's $50,000 and my net is 13 on the whole thing. And that seems like a lot of money. But when you're doing a big show, like there's just a lot of ins and outs. And I think that people think that the galleries are, I mean, we're lucky if we get a 30% margin when all is said and done after the discount are given or costs are put into a piece of art. And so just be patient with us if we ask you to split the discount or art consultants. I mean, be patient if we can only give you 5%, you -hmm. know, because sometimes we simply don't have, these things are not built in. Your discounts are not built into the price of a piece. Painting can do that because they're one of a kind. And, but these are prices that you get, should get the same all across the board. Mm -hmm. So just be patient because it's hard to get even when all is said and done a 30% margin on something. It's also a Especially lot of, when you're running a big, you know, you've got 10 yeah, employees yeah, and insurance. Yeah, you have a lot of employees, and, a lot of overhead. But it's also, you know, just closing a sale can be a lot of work. I mean, <laughs> I don't tell my artists, you know, 75, 80% of what I'm working on because I never know if something's really no. going to go through. I mean, so I can, you know, I can be going back and forth with, for Someone weeks. for we or months. Months, you yeah. Know. I had a guy pop up recently who, you know, I went back and forth with about a year and a half ago and he just vanished and, you know, and he's popped up again and we'll see if it, you know, we'll see. I have no idea. No, but. it's true. I mean, I talked to one of my sales girls and she said, you know, it's harder than selling something. And I said, what? She's like, selling it and then trying to save it, you know, which is selling it and then, the you know, the client trying to cancel it mm-hmm. and then trying to sell it again and to save the sale. Mm-hmm. You know, that is a real accomplishment. How about the old, it turns out my spouse doesn't like it, right? Like how? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that's frequent. Um, and I think that, you know, lots of times 
collectors don't all, I mean, this is, this is the art, you know, the artists are, this is their job. This is a career. I think you get a lot of people asking for donations and it's like, this is their job. Mm -hmm. If you want to donation you need to pay for it you know because it never helps the artist to to donate something for an organization 100% like it's important that we still support their part in that because it is they get asked a lot and it doesn't always benefit no. you know there's a lot of talk oh it benefits you you see it it's not true and so all the donations that we are involved in, the artist gets their percent. Wow, um, that's amazing. We won't do it because it's just not, yeah. it, you know, the only person that suffers is the artist giving away their art. And it's hard. It's yeah. hard. You have, I know, an appointment in a few minutes. So let me just ask you before we wrap up. You just are closing a Richard Mizrock, Megan Rippenhoff show, which is wonderful pairing. Richard and Megan have been friends and in a sort of mentor-mentee relationship for many years out in California. What's next? What's coming up? So this exhibition was super exciting for me. In the inaugural year of the gallery, which we moved in in March, I have, you know, my first job, like I said, was with Cheryl Haynes. So I was in the same building as Frankel and Koch. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I've always wanted to do a Mizrak show. And Megan, just, you know, by chance, she has been a big part of his life. And so this show was really a wonderful collaboration. Mm -hmm. And again, I thought the whole idea and importance of Richard kind of passing down his knowledge of photography to someone like Megan. And strangely enough, Richard is now digital, doing negatives, you know, digitally, and Megan's still working with cyanotypes, which mm -hmm. is a really old process. So mm -hmm. they've kind of switched roles, but to understand the processes in general. And I think, and I wanted to mention this, that Megan's work, you know, I was listening to a talk that she was giving, and the fact that she said that she chose the cyanotype simply because of the dynamic nature of it, so that it it does shift, it does mm -hmm. change, it breathes, like if it's in the light, it breathes. And, and she and I came up with this idea, I was like, I need to, we need to make curtains for the work, you know, to like strap on the work at night, like velvet, the same color, and you get the curtain with the piece, because if you put it on the piece for a few weeks, it'll start darkening mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just that, that idea of participating mm -hmm. as a collector mm -hmm. in the way that the work looks. Mm -hmm. So next we're doing, that show will be up through the holidays. And then we're showing Mary Ellen Bartley mm -hmm. with Gail Albert Halliban. And I love oh, wow. the conversation between the architecture mm -hmm. of these two mm -hmm. women and Gail's um, Through the Window series. Mm -hmm. And then also the book series. I just love sort of the simplicity of yeah. those two conversations. So that will be in late January, early February. And we're still rounding out our spring show. Got so it. I'll keep you posted on that. Okay, so. please do. Well, thank you so much thank you. for talking with me today mm -hmm. and, and inviting MC You're the Dean highlight of I, my day, yeah. oh, well, Sasha. How about that? I mean, you, you all heard that. I mean, we talk about that every time we go to an art fair. Courtney Lee and I are always like our favorite person is here <laughs> today. So thank you. Likewise. Likewise. Okay. Well, See you soon. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is a production of the Photo Work Foundation. Executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and the associate producer is Taylor Selsback. The show is also produced and edited by me, Michael Chovendalton of Real Photo Show. 
Music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show and wish to find out more about the foundation, please visit photowork.foundation and be sure to subscribe and review with all the stars on your listening platform.